welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your regular host. Today, I am joined by one of ELI's visiting scholars, Jeffrey Peterson, who will be conducting our interview. Jeff joined ELI in 2022 with over 40 years of experience in environmental policy development and program management, with a particular focus on water issues. He is also the author of A New Coast, Strategies for Responding to Devastating Storms and Rising Seas, which provides a comprehensive assessment of the changes occurring at America's coast and offers strategies for preparing for the intensifying impacts of climate change along the coast. For today's episode, Jeff will be interviewing Susan Crawford and Robert Berchik, both of whom are noted lawyers and have new books on climate change adaptation and coastal resilience set to be published this spring, spring 2023. Susan is the John A. Riley Clinical Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. She was previously Obama's Special Assistant to the President for Science, Technology, and Innovation Policy, and co-led the Federal Communications Commission transition team between his and the Bush administration. In April 2023, this month, she will publish her fourth book, Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm, which delves into how Charleston's legacy of slavery and racism has shaped and continues to shape the city's precarious environmental position on the coast. Robert Berchik is the Gautier St. Martin Eminent Scholar Chair in Environmental Law at Loyola University, New Orleans, a Senior Fellow in Disaster Resilience at Tulane University, and the President of the Center for Progressive Reform, a nonprofit research and advocacy organization. He has previously served in the Obama administration as Deputy Associate Administrator for Policy at the EPA, where he helped develop climate change adaptation policy and served on President Obama's interagency climate change adaptation task force. His fifth book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience, will also be published this April. In his latest book, Rob examines how we can adapt to address the climate change-related damage we have already caused and explores what resilience looks like, both historically and in the present. I'm going to hand the mic over to Jeff now to conduct the interview. Thank you to Jeff, Susan, and Rob for joining us today. Thank you, Georgia. And thank you, Rob and Susan. Welcome to the podcast. Let me start with a general introductory question. You both have distinguished legal careers working on a range of issues other than climate change and coastal resilience. What prompted you to turn your attention to this topic and how did you decide that you wanted to write a book about this challenge? Well, sure. The reason that I am working on climate resilience right now is because my house flooded during Hurricane Katrina. I live in in New Orleans, and I, in fact, had just moved to New Orleans within the year of that storm hitting and the levees breaching. And I had always been writing about environmental issues. And in particular, I was interested in in disaster issues. But when that happened and I and my family went through it, along with everybody else here in New Orleans and really just saw firsthand so much of the struggle, my, my school at Loyola University actually created a disaster law clinic, which still exists to this day. 
And a lot of the work that I have been doing after that, I started working with some folks to develop the field of disaster law, to organize it. We have the first case book out in disaster law. And then I pivoted and said, you know, the rest of what I do is going to be related to climate resilience and environmental law. And I'm so glad I did. And I'm really happy to be in this city where it's a, it's a living laboratory here in New Orleans. And as for me, my background for decades had been in tech policy. And there I was always answering, trying to answer the question at any rate, what's government good for? What is the right role for government? What's the line between public and private? Where should it be? And it seemed to me that this particular question, the role of government in helping people make the transition from the climate we have now to the climate changes we're going to see rapidly coming to populations all across the globe in just a few decades, it seemed to me the most important question I could work on. So that's what drew me to this topic. And I'm very glad to be on this podcast and looking forward to learning from you both. Well, jumping right into this whole challenge of coastal resilience and, and sea level rise, maybe both of you could give us your thoughts and background thinking on how big an issue is the sea level rise and coastal resilience challenge? And a lot of people have the idea that these coastal flood risks are, are far in the future. Are they, are they right about that? These changes are already happening. And people should be noticing video of houses in North Carolina falling to the sea. Superstorm Sandy was more than a warning, as was Katrina. What we're facing is a phase change in climate where beginning maybe 2040, 2050, the changes in sea level rise will be accelerating so rapidly that it will be very difficult to make plans about how to adapt beginning pretty soon. I think that many Americans are capable, like all of us, of enormous self-deception and denial and boosterism and are not paying attention to this phase change shift that's going to affect 40% of the U.S. population, about half our GDP, and a trillion dollars in residential real estate. I'll just support everything that Susan said and say that, you know, this phase change we've known about, but I think we haven't thought about it very well until maybe very recently. I've served in the Obama administration at the EPA and worked on the president's task force on climate change adaptation. And even at that time, working with 14 different agencies, you know, from agriculture to defense to, of course, the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Interior, which owns almost a third of the land in the United States. I found that at that time, there was not a real appreciation, I think, for that. By 2080 or the, or the end of the century, I mean, we are looking at, you know, perhaps two and a half, three feet of, of sea level rise. We're, we're not exactly sure. And if you take that and you add the changes in precipitation, which are huge in places like the Northeast in terms of the amount of downpours that are increasing, we're going to see floods on the coasts and floods on the rivers. Susan mentioned the, the amount of real estate, residential real estate that it's that's at stake. Down here in the Gulf, we have estimates that by mid-century, we'll have something like $2 trillion of assets total 
right, that are in danger because of sea level rise, $2 trillion worth. And the U.S. government is now estimating that the coastal flooding may launch a 13 million people actually seeking new places to live on account of climate change, people who live on the coast. So 13 million people moving within the century, and they're going to be moving you know, inland into cities that aren't, aren't prepared for that. Well, you mentioned the disaster emergency response aspect of the challenge, and I think most Americans, when they think about climate impacts on the coast, they think of major hurricanes like, like Hurricane Ian that hit Fort Myers last year. And after a big storm, there is a major effort to build everything back the way it was and pretty much where it was, regardless of the risk of another storm or rising seas. Do you all feel that the disaster emergency response element of the coastal flood problem is maybe overshadowing the longer term sea level rise challenges? And do you have thoughts on how to encourage a balanced approach that would look at both of the problems together? That's a, re that's a really good point. Because as with most things that human beings get involved in, we react to sudden change and we don't think so much about planning for the future. And, and the problem with this is that because of the, the climate crisis, we know that we're going to be seeing future climate threats and impacts, stronger storms, uh, more flooding and all the rest. But as you say, we tend to wait until something bad happens and then throw money at it and throw resources. And of course, we need to do all of those things when people are suffering. But we could save four times the amount of money if we avoided those kinds of impacts before they happened. And it's hard to devote resources and time to plan for something because in part you think, well, I've got you know, immediate needs I have to take care of, even if you're a country, right? You also think, well, I don't know how bad things might get. We don't know exactly how much sea level is going to rise, how much storms are going to increase. But we know what the direction is, and we know that it's foolish to not spend money up front to try to avoid the risks and the impacts that we can't manage. Uh, Susan, I'm interested in hearing, too, about I know in your book you talk about Charleston and how at least some people in Charleston are thinking, well, we'll wait for the next storm and that's when money will be available and then we can start investing and doing something about it, which, of course, is the wrong incentive, right? You should be trying to plan and fix things before something bad happens. That, that's right. And actually, Rob, what's going on is that Charleston's just responding to the very broken systems at every level of government above them, which are focus almost totally on disaster relief. So the only way to get money into the city is to suffer disaster and then hope that money comes your way. Jeff, you asked about whether I've seen a balanced approach anywhere. As far as I can tell, the only country in the world that is looking at both chronic inundation and storms and keeping a long-term view in mind is the Netherlands. They point out that it took 45 years after their huge 1953 storms to plan and implement their Delta plan, their armoring of the coast. And they see that that long lead time for planning, plus the huge consequences of coastal flooding. And they are pretty secure in science that it's going to be at least a meter and probably two by the end of the century. It requires that retreat or withdrawal be on the table, that that country needs to worry now about 
plans that might be occupying land that they'll need in the future for living to the west of the very crowded coast. And they're seeing this large potential impact of accelerating sea level rise in the form of both flooding and storms. And they're seriously talking about the need to move east. But they're the only country that's doing that. And even China keeps words about withdrawal out of their national planning. Well, you both mentioned the topic of big infrastructure. And really one of the central issues that coastal communities are facing is whether to defend the existing coastline with big infrastructure like a seawall, or whether to start that process of relocating assets to higher ground. Did the, the people that you talked to in writing your books consider relocation, whether voluntary or mandatory, as a realistic option? And what will it take for communities to make relocation a key part of their effort to adapt to these more severe storms and higher sea levels? Two answers to that, Jeff. When I spoke to people in Charleston, I met with many people who are thinking about leaving as individuals. There's a science journalist I interviewed in detail who said he's sold his house and he's out of there. Despite a very warm attachment to Charleston, lots of residents are quietly selling and they're worried because houses are sitting on the market for a long time. And certainly the city leaders are saying, no, not on my watch, not going to happen. I recently spoke to the chief state resilience officer of a major Atlantic seaboard state who told me that he's met with many towns that are profoundly threatened by sea level rise. And he says, we can show them maps until we're blue in the face. We can show them what the future is. And in my view, he said, it'll take repeated disasters separated by very little pause in order for people to believe that relocation is going to be necessary. I have seen some instances of, of communities thinking about this in th serious ways. In the course of uh, researching my book, I, I did another study with some folks looking at communities in the United States that, in fact, were considering relocating in total as a, as a whole community to somewhere else. And uh, by our count, there were something like 12 or 15 of those communities in the United States all of them were indigenous communities. Most of them were Alaska native villages on the coast in Alaska. A few were in Washington state. And then there's one community, the Ile de Jean Charles tribe in Southern Louisiana, which is on a small sliver of an island that is about 2% what it used to be because it's sinking. And the story there is even the communities that, that want to move don't have the economic resources. They don't have the legal framework that would allow them to acquire space and then govern it in a way that they had previously done. So we don't have the legal infrastructure for that. And we don't have so far the financial infrastructure. I'll just add one other thing because I haven't seen it much in the press, but in Louisiana, we have coastal restoration program, the largest climate resilience program, I say, in the world it's trying to restore many of the marshes and the swamps down here, which protect people from hurricane. But there's a whole group of communities in southern Louisiana that cannot survive and because they don't have protection from levees and because they're small and their resources are 
are, are modest. And our state in this in this coastal restoration plan is is devoting several billions of dollars to identify these communities and then encourage them in voluntary ways to move. And these communities are on maps that are marked for that. And it's one of the few places that I know of where a government is actually saying, here are places that we don't think we're going to be able to support by the by the end of next century. And these are places where we're encouraging people to move away from now, which is a horrible thing to have to consider because these people have been there for for many generations in some cases. But it, it may be the only a way to do this in a, in a humane way, as long as there is uh, financial resources, as long as there are resources available and help. Well, you mentioned legal infrastructure, and we are on a Environmental Law Institute podcast. So i thinking that you both have legal backgrounds. I'm curious to hear your thinking on some of the legal challenges that may arise when addressing climate adaptation generally and coastal storm flooding and rising seas more specifically. And how can we prepare for these challenges? And how do we need to shift our thinking to addressing these emerging issues? For example, do we need to rethink takings compensation for losses due to rising seas? Well, I'll start off here. I I think that the legal challenge is tremendous because existing law and existing programs at the federal level, state level, and local level don't support the kind of wholesale, holistic, thoughtful, compassionate, respectful, extremely well-funded effort we're going to need to help people make a grief-filled transition away from places they love. We, it just doesn't exist. All the, all the programs up and down are directed in, all the arrows are pointing in the wrong direction. I would prefer not to rethink takings compensation because that involves an enormous amount of litigation and waste of time and use of lawyers to bring individual piecemeal cases. We have never seen a collective problem as profound as the one that sea level rise is placing before us. And we will need to act almost as if we're on a wartime or emergency basis and reorganize a lot of existing legal structures to support this the kind of community-based thinking that Rob's talking about on a very large scale. So from my perspective, it would be better to be planning upfront administratively and in the executive branch to you know, provide this kind of assistance rather than litigating after the fact when a house or a business has fallen into the ocean. Yeah, I'll I'll say something about the litigation side and the liability side, because uh, I think Susan's making a really great point. I mean, first of all, it it makes a lot of sense to avoid problems than, than litigating the damage afterwards. The problem that I see that we have in the United States is that there are very few incentives for governments to actually start planning in advance unless they're threatened with with some kind of massive liability. So, for instance, 
PG and E, right in in California after after those wildfires, some of which have been caused by transmission lines that, that were not properly maintained. It seems like the only way to get a utilities or that that utilities attention was to raise this specter of of billions of dollars or a billion dollars in in damages. You see that I saw that after Hurricane Katrina. I mean, the levees failed. The federal levees weren't built properly to specification. They weren't designed properly uh, up and down. There was all kinds of evidence for that. But there was no way to hold the federal government legally accountable because of certain kinds of immunities. In the very end, the city, uh, or at least uh, some members, some residents of the cities who were damaged, tried to make takings cases by claiming that that the water that flooded their areas was, in fact, occupying their land and it was done by the government. That failed, too. That was huge amounts of litigation, and I can't say that it's efficient, but but when you don't have any way for the government to be held accountable for having done proper planning or proper construction, it's really hard. And I have to say that one of the things when I talk to city leaders that does kind of push them in the direction of wanting to be more resilient is they're afraid of being sued by uh, residents or insurance companies or or other groups that might say that they haven't provided enough protection. I feel kind of on both sides on that particular one, because I agree with Susan that I think it's inefficient and in some ways unfair. But, you know, some cities are banking on these lawsuits as a way of of bringing money in so that they can afford the resilience efforts. What we need is is a federal program and state programs that are designed to provide money in streams of revenue that can be counted on so we don't have to worry about this kind of wild west litigation in order to treat people fairly. Well, both of your books highlight the importance of supporting communities that have been economically and socially marginalized when responding to climate change risks and events. Could you describe the social justice challenges you've seen as you were writing your books? And do you have thoughts about what can be done to assure that socially marginalized people and communities are considered in climate adaptation planning? Does the Biden Justice 40 initiative point us in the right direction here? Well, I was happy to see the economic arm of the Biden administration come out with its economic report to the president recently. Chapter nine is all about adaptation and points out that because so many of our federal programs emphasize cost benefit analyses as the basis on which priorities are set and funds are spent, our grim history as a country in excluding racial minorities and low-income people from housing opportunity and housing wealth creation and often relegating racial minorities to low-lying properties means that there are existing disparities that will be amplified by sea level rise, and especially when they're combined with things like inadequate health care and inadequate access to food and substandard housing stock, you add all of that up. And it's a very grim picture for underprivileged and vulnerable communities in America uh, as the waters rise. I'm happy to see the recognition of that reality by the Biden administration. What I'm worried about is that if we get into fights about identity as the basis, as really the sole basis on which we make decisions about what is really a collective 
problem, it'll be very easy to undermine those efforts. I would rather see this story be told as one of survival and economic prosperity for the country as a whole, and that everybody with a belly button deserves assistance, and that certainly we shouldn't structure programs according to existing cost-benefit analyses so that only wealthy and white residents of the United States do well, but that in fact, there's a very large narrative of economic survival that's crucial here. I sometimes worry that by focusing too much on identity, we will lose the collective story here, which is a very dramatic one. That being said, my book is about the role of race in these issues. And I know how important it is and how amplified it will be by sea level rise. So I don't want to downplay race. What I want to suggest is that we have a risk of being marginalized if we talk only about marginalized people. Yeah, I think that this is definitely something, you know, an issue that applies to everyone. And politically, I think we're going to have to see it that way in order to get people's attention. What's difficult that I find in in various communities that I've looked at is that uh, there, there seems sometimes there's this idea where you think, well, there are some places that can adjust easily to climate change or maybe not easily, but they can do it. And then there are other places where you're going to have to retreat. But often... The, the dividing line between those communities is one of financial resources, right? So down here in, in southern Louisiana, there are communities that are protected by levees, including the one I live in in New Orleans. And there are communities that are not protected by levees, I- including in the southern part of the state, some indigenous communities, which lobbied hard to get levee protection and didn't get it. They're small communities. There were all kinds of reasons that you might see to explain that. In Manhattan, they're talking about building a kind of a U-wall that might possibly protect Wall Street and the Battery and the southern part of Manhattan Island because they've got the money to do it. Houston, Texas is talking about that. But there are other communities that just aren't going to have the wherewithal. And even in Louisiana, we're worried because after Katrina, we got the government's attention to build climate resilience into many of our programs. But now here in New Orleans, we're going to be competing against Miami and New York City and Houston and San Francisco. And so I think it's going to be really hard because the money for restoration and protection is going to want to chase economic assets, those trillions of dollars worth of assets. And as long as you do it that way, then the people who have fewer assets are going to be the ones that aren't as protected. Well, Susan, you note that Charleston is a bellwether for other towns and cities with a future of inundation juxtaposed against little planning to ensure a thriving future for all residents. In in what ways is Charleston emblematic of other coastal cities? What can other cities learn from the situation occurring in Charleston that might improve their response to rising sea levels? Charleston was founded at a time of a sort of domineering colonialism, and it was founded dangerously right next to the water. And it is facing permanent chronic inundation in a matter of decades, not centuries. And the entire East Coast actually will be seeing rapidly accelerating sea level rise. It'll that will be going three to four times faster in its speed, its velocity of change. 
uh, than the rest of the globe. So Charleston is emblematic in that it's like New York, like Boston, right on the water. And we'll be seeing a lot of sea level rise. It's also, though, a smaller place that allows the readers of my book to understand its geography and sort of take it all in without much effort. It's a city that tourists love to visit. So that's why I chose it as a place for this tale. All the pressures in Charleston of displacement, gentrification, lack of public planning, sort of benign paternalistic neglect of its Black residents, and a real resistance to the role of government, and a tremendous emphasis on growth above almost everything else. All of those forces are playing out in all American coastal cities, I think it's fair to say. Charleston just happens to have a particularly rich history and is, as I say, dreamt up by millions of people. So it's both emblematic, but it's, and it's also a picture in small of what's going to happen along many American coastlines, both good and bad. I think that no city on the American coast is doing a terrific job of planning ahead. They've got a terrible problem. Cities, by and large, rely on property tax to fund their police services and to make sure the streets get cleaned. And if they start worrying publicly about what's about to happen, there's a risk that property values will fall, the tax base disappears, the city perhaps has to go into bankruptcy at some point, and then it really can't afford to pay for any city services. So in a sense, uh, cities are all stuck in this collective never-never land of not talking about anything beyond say 2045 or 2050. What I'm hoping to do with the Charleston story is quite sharply describe what is very likely to happen after the middle of the century and to tell the story in some detail of the planning failures, the absorption with infrastructure building rather than retreat or rather armoring rather than retreat and the failure to plan for 90% of the population of Charleston. Just as Rob just described in New Orleans, only a tiny fragment of the Charleston population would be protected by the armoring that's planned. Everybody else would be left to their own devices in the marshes. Well, Rob, the title of your book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, certainly a provocative title, and it references an octopus that was found in a luxury condominium parking garage after a flooding event in, in Miami. Can you Describe for us a little bit about why you chose this particular event to start your book and how it serves as sort of a symbol of our already changing climate. Well, I thought that it was a really interesting uh, <laughs> event. These these photos of this octopus, which was found. I mean, what happened is the the drain, the, the stormwater drain from the garage actually backed up and reversed because of a high tide and because of sea level rise on Biscayne Bay and sort of burped out this this octopus into, into the garage. And the guy, uh, Richard Conlin, who discovered the octopus, he took a photograph of it on his phone, of course, and then it went viral. And when I saw that back in 2016, I co-wrote an op-ed for the Miami Herald, and I said, this is the symbol of climate change. You know, it is the eight-armed alarm bell, I think I, I called it. And what I was trying to do is I thought we'd seen enough of the polar bears, and we'd certainly seen enough of 
the damage that that is so extreme that it just drives us into the fetal position, right? It just makes us paralyzed with anxiety. And I was looking for some kind of a story that would be a portal into talking about this without seeming terribly threatening. And the idea is, well, if you can't, you know, keep octopuses out of your parking garage, what else, you know, might you be incapable of? And and I think that that, that fear is really is real. When I tour on the book, I talk to people all the time who say that they're uh, sort of anxious and paralyzed. We see this in surveys where something like 60% of people in the United States are concerned or alarmed about climate change, but the majority of those people don't even talk about it, right? And the reason they don't talk about it, even to people who are sympathetic, is that they're afraid and they don't know what to do. And so what I'm trying to do in my book is look at particular groups, communities, advocates, whether it's indigenous peoples on the coast or whether it's a 15-year-old girl who's a master scuba diver who is working on coral restoration projects in Key West, or whether it is an environmental justice advocate in Cancer Alley trying to make chemical plants safer so that they don't spit up toxins during power outages, that, that there are people doing extraordinary work and moving the needle. It's not as far as the needle needs to go, but we can do something to become more resilient, both in our households, in our communities, as voters, and at the large scales of government in which this has to happen. And I think that if we don't see that we are capable of making things better, then we really will just crouch in the fetal position and say, I, I can't do anything about it. And I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to worry about it, whatever it is. The octopus was a way to you know, kind of gently move into the direction. There's a lot of hope in my book, but it's a deadly serious book because we, we're facing big issues. Well, thanks. I read a lot about climate change and coastal resilience, but uh, I really want to say that both of your books are fascinating and and offer new and really interesting insights into this problem. I can't recommend them highly enough. And fortunately, they're now available. And I thought I should give each of you a chance to just say a word about where our listeners can learn more about your work and, and purchase your books. Well, thank you, Jeff. Yes, uh, mine is available at Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm at your local independent bookstore now. And I'll be talking about the book in Boston and New York and Washington and Charleston and on any podcast that wants to have me and in any city that wants to have me. I think it's a fascinating story. My book tries to be sort of common ground of coastal sea level rise, focusing on the lives of Black residents of Charleston, South Carolina. So thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, in my book, uh, Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience, it is, uh, it's now available online. It, it should be, it's being sold in bookstores here in New Orleans, but I think it's going to be in, in independent bookstores everywhere and starting about April 11th. And I have been doing a bit of a book tour. I have going to be in Octavia Books in New Orleans, going to be at the Harbor Bookstore in, in Cambridge, Lost City Books in Washington, D.C., Books and Books in Miami, in New York City and uh, Las Vegas and, and Seattle later on. 
Okay, well, that's great. I just want to say thank you very much for your very thoughtful and helpful uh, discussion of these questions. And I hope our ELI listening audience finds this as fascinating and interesting as, as I did. So thank you again. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.